I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. And as it's curious about the books, it's also curious about the people who commission, edit, market and sell those books. This week, we have an interview with Sarah Caro, who describes herself on Twitter as Editorial Director for Social Sciences at Princeton University Press, long-suffering Arsenal fan and qualified optimist. In this interview, we focus mostly on the first of those, though the third clearly influences everything Sarah does. As you'll hear... She's had an amazingly dynamic career, having worked at a significant number of leading publishers in senior roles across a number of disciplines. Along with her management role, Sarah still finds time to commission and edit books. She's the editor of one of Princeton's highest-grossing, highest-profile recent titles, Capitalism Without Capital, by Jonathan Haskell and Stian Westlake. In this interview, she tells me she's a huge advocate for the intellectual life but also deeply committed to books that relate to everyday life that have some real-world impact. But let's start at the beginning. How did Sarah get into publishing in the first place? It was completely by accident, like most things in my life. (laughs) I'd been in the theatre. I was interested in political theatre in the 80s and um, was a writer and assistant director and I needed to earn some money to pay for my wedding dress. So I got a job working at Waterstones in Charing Cross Road on the top floor, which was the academic floor, and loved that and suddenly realised that there was this whole kind of business where people had jobs involving books, which I'd always loved, which I'd known nothing about beforehand. After that, I was a bookseller and then I got fed up with being stuck in the same place. So I saw the reps coming and going and that looked quite fun. So I became a sales rep. And then once I was in-house at Longman, higher ed as was, I suddenly realised there was this job called being an editor. (laughs) And uh, it looked good to me, so... Well, that's, that's a very logical progression, really, isn't it? And I, I love, I love the, the starting out with the wedding dress. That's, that's an excellent origin story. That'll be hard to beat, I think. So when you, when you had discovered that there were such things as, as editors, how did you then set about be- becoming one? Because it, you know, it's quite difficult yeah. sometimes to get your foot in the door, even if you've got some experience of publishing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, well, I was quite lucky because Longman was going through a period of expansion and they decided that they wanted to set up a new academic psychology list which I knew nothing about, 
But I, what I did was when I was repping, I was covering Scotland and the Northeast, academic and visiting bookshops and, and departments. I would add on at the ex- end of the day an extra appointment in the psychology department and go and talk to people. And so I kind of researched the area so that when it came to the interview, I could give the impression that I actually knew what I was talking about. Well, you you did. I mean, you say you gave an impression, but you actually did because you'd done. You'd look. You'd looked at how the market was functioning, yeah. what was selling, and yeah. who was publishing what. So it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. Well, I'm talking to the academics about what courses they were teaching and so on, and understanding the structure of of psychology degrees as well. So, so you got the job, and did you yeah. take to it? Yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was actually really lucky timing too with, with psychology because it was, I'm trying to think when it was now, it must have been early 90s. And it was at a period when there was a sudden expansion of interest in psychology. And there was, there, I remember there actually being a piece in, in one of the, somewhere like The Guardian, about the psychologizing of society. And it was really exciting to be working in an area that suddenly everyone was interested in. So what, what came after that? I was living in Cambridge and I applied for a job at Cambridge University Press because it was actually quite hard. Longman focused on textbooks and I wanted to do a variety of other kinds of books. Cambridge was obviously very appealing because of the kind of status. You, The minute you said, once I got the job, the minute you said you were from Cambridge, you kind of got an entree to most people's offices. So I stayed there for about eight years doing a range of social sciences. Right, so you didn't you didn't stick with psychology, you broadened out. I did um, sociology and criminology as well. Is that a facet of your character that you like engaging with new things? You like going into a new area and finding out how they work and... and, um... Yeah, very much so. I I find it really exciting. So, in fact, the other big... So, the next move was a complete uh, switch in that I was approached by OUP to be their economics editor. And as someone who barely... I don't say this with pride, but barely managed to pass their O-level maths, I was a little bit dubious when they first approached me. But the person who spoke to me said, you know, it's about you you need to understand publishing and, and don't worry too much about understanding economics. So I was excited by the chance to explore a completely new area. So, yeah. And did, did you at any point in, in that phase in your career weep over equations? <laughs> I went to sleep over quite a lot of equations in conferences. So I went to as many, because it was a new subject area for me, I went to visit lots of departments and went to as many conferences and conference sessions as possible. And uh, there's this kind of standard pattern where you go to a lecture and the first 10 minutes would be entirely intelligible and really engaging. And then suddenly the equations would come up and I kind of sit there and <laughs> wait for them to pass. But generally there was a conclusion as well. So you could <laughs> just get through the equations. Yeah. I remember I remember editing one manuscript and weeping literal tears of boredom and until that moment I thought tears of boredom was a was a figure of speech yeah. but actually tears were rolling down my cheeks because I just couldn't keep my eyes open and I can't confess what that was. So you'd reached OUP and an economics editor and again I mean that some of these jobs people you know I know people sit in them for the rest of their lives they get those jobs they think yeah. okay I'm going to be I'm going to do this job and I'm just going to plow this particular field and, and and master this particular terrain but um 
was your next step to go to into trade publishing in London? It was, yeah. So um, I, when I kind of understood that there was this thing called publishing, my first thought had been to try and move into trade publishing because I'd been involved when I was working for Waterstones in London in lots of events, and I was actually buying all of the literary non, uh, the literary fiction. So that seemed to be the obvious way to go. But when I tried to get into trade publishing, I found it was very much a closed shop, and I was told very memorably that even though I was a senior editor doing quite well as an academic publisher I would have to go back to the beginning and start again as an editorial assistant so at the age of 35 that just seemed ridiculous so I said no thank you but I always had a longing and a kind of enthusiasm for trade books and reaching a broader audience so um, the, a job came up at Profile, which I was very excited about. I'd always admired Andrew Franklin and, and the books that they produced. So I applied for that and I was very, very lucky to get him. I mean, I entirely agree with what you're saying. And I think there is, there is a, a, a definite and a, attractive overlap between some independent trade publishers, mm-hmm. the kind of books they're doing, and some of the output of, of the bigger university presses, again, the kind of more academic trade or maybe even pure trade books that they're doing. It's, it's kind of got the, it seems to me there is, a, there is a sort of overlap that is the best of both worlds. Yes, no, I agree. Um, but it was a very interesting experience. I mean, I loved it. I was only there for a short while for personal reasons. I had small children and a disabled husband, and I found four hours commuting a day. In the end, however much my enthusiasm was, it was just impossible to, to manage. So very sadly, I had to leave. But um, yeah, I found... I found it really exciting working in the trade world, working with agents, the whole kind of sense of self that one has as a trade publisher is kind of very exciting and you feel like you're on the cutting edge of things. I was surprised by what I missed about academic publishing. I missed the fact that I didn't have all of the international travel. I do a lot of travel. And I really enjoyed when I was an academic publisher going to other parts of Europe and to the US and visiting departments there and talking to people there. And I didn't have that with the trade publishing. I also, bizarre, and this will seem very odd to many people, I missed peer review. I missed that process of of commissioning reviews and then engaging with the feedback and sharing that with the author and having it, I guess, almost as a security blanket that I wasn't missing anything. Because I've always felt confident about the kind of line editing and the, and the stylistic stuff. But, you know, obviously you can't be an expert on everything. So, yeah, and no, it was interesting. I'd, I was struggling. I made that transition from the sort of academic trade into more tradey publishing at just how reactive it was and how much of it was mediated through agents and the job of the editor was sort of sifting the best and then bidding you know deciding which horses to back and then 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 going into it rather than originating projects which was actually one of the bits that I liked best about my job previously. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. I, I found that very frustrating that, as you say, it's almost like a passive thing. So it reminded me of my days in the theatre when you would be kind of sitting by the phone waiting for someone to offer you a job before you could do anything. And that was what I felt a bit with trade publishing. I mean, obviously, there are really good trade publishers who are more... Um, 
proactive. And I think Profile is actually one of the more proactive of those houses. But even so, it was, yeah, this frustration that you you often were being having to go through an agent to get to an author. And that I also found there was a bit of a, a, a thing of people wanting, if one book was successful of a certain type, then there would be 10 copycat books that came out. And there's a tendency to try and replicate other people's successes. And I found that very unexciting. <laughs> and a, a slightly predictable way of presenting books in terms of other books that have been successful saying is it this is this is or even like in movies I guess yes. you know this is a bit like x crossed with y yeah. not to denigrate it I really loved it yeah. but but it's it's interesting that you t- you also saw you know there, there's a bit of downside although I didn't miss peer review I have to say so after profile was was Princeton your next your no, next step actually I had another complete change which again was just opportunistic someone approached me I mean I've been very I, actually the move to economics was really lucky because there aren't that many economics editors around and so um, I was approached by Wiley to um, manage their journals list I knew nothing about journals and had never worked in journals publishing but it was a job back in Oxford so for personal reasons I took it and it was actually a really interesting experience I didn't really enjoy (laughs) journals publishing I found it frustrating that there was no real intellectual engagement with the content I mean and that was entirely appropriate because I was mainly working on society big society journals so it was very much more of a business thing but I learned a huge amount about kind of the business of publishing the business of of kind of having clients I'd never worked in such a client-centric environment. So that was a huge learning curve. And actually, at the time, I was working with a lot of ex-Blackwell people, and they were fantastic on kind of managing. So I, I managed quite a big team, and I learned a lot there. And I think I had I really enjoyed the management team that I was part of as well, which was a kind of totally unexpected bonus, really. Again, you could have decided, well, you know, I'm going to stay here. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a, a journals publisher or remain a journals publisher. But something something was calling you again. <laughs> yes. I sound like a complete kind of, uh, what's the word, intellectual butterfly. Don't no, I'm really impressed. Yeah. I'm really impressed by how you seem to take to it, how you seem to accept the challenge and take to it and completely master it and then want a completely different challenge. Well, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But I think that the... I always knew that I wouldn't stay in journals publishing for long because I missed that engagement with ideas. And that's what I absolutely love about publishing is kind of getting a proposal, going to a conference session and hearing someone speak or just having a conversation over coffee and just hearing about some idea that you hadn't thought of or that you'd been sort of in the back of your mind, you'd been picking up related ideas. And that process of taking an idea and developing it and expanding it and turning it into a book and making it accessible and seeing how it fits in with the broader kind of intellectual and public discourse, I think is just absolutely thrilling and a great privilege to be able to spend your time doing it so can you possibly describe what kind of things make your antennae twitch or think of an example recently or you know something that you really thought yeah I want to I want to go after that I want to make something of that yeah well this is a bit of a cheeky example because I didn't actually have to work very hard on it but um, I got a phone call from a guy called Simon May who's a philosopher so philosophy is technically not really part of my remit. Um, Is he the love the love guy? Yes that's right yeah he did a book for Yale on love. He just said oh I've heard about you and um, I've got this book on the concept of cute 
And um, he started talking about it. And I'd never kind of thought about cute as a concept particularly. And he started talking about it in terms of kind of cultural and political things and the idea of cute as almost um, a form of resistance to power. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing. This is really interesting. And uh, we got talking and we talked a lot about how to shape it. He'd already done, he'd already got quite a detailed proposal. And we kind of had lots of really interesting conversations. And, you know, we published the book earlier this year. That was an example of something which I hadn't kind of thought about specifically. But then as soon as it was mentioned to me, all sorts of other pathways kind of lit up and connections. And I got really excited about it. You said he'd heard about you. Can you venture to suggest what he might do? Well, obviously, he's had you a good editor, but, you know, if people are sort of thinking about your taste and the kind of books that will appeal to you, what do you think they, they might be saying? Oh, it's so difficult, isn't it, to know how other people see you? I think, um, I think people know that I'm interested in books which relate to everyday life. One of the things I feel passionately about, I'm a huge advocate, obviously, for the kind of intellectual life and for academia, but I do feel that it's important that on some level it interacts. I mean, obviously, in, in, it depends on the subject area, but in the social sciences, it has to interact with the real world. And I'm very keen on looking at the kind of policy implications. So, often, I mean, cute is, a, is not an example of that in a sense, although it does illuminate our understanding of lots of different things like, you know, gender and politics and international relations, bizarrely. Uh, yeah, I'm very keen on books which, draw out the real world applications and implications of research it's actually another another example of of a kind of completely serendipitous thing was that we were having um a, uh, someone had kindly set up a, a launch event for Diane Coyles who's a very brilliant author of ours um her book on GDP and I was chatting to one of uh, the people who were there and he was telling me about some research that he was doing on the intangible economy and I'd never heard the term the intangible economy because I'm quite ignorant and I said, I said oh you know what's that that sounds interesting and so he explained it to me and we got talking and the proposal developed and it went through quite an extended kind of review process and it eventually became a book called Capitalism Without Capital by Jonathan Haskell and Stephen Westlake, which has been our highest grossing book for like the last year or so and got an, ind an endorsement from Bill Gates. And it was all, it's all been very exciting. But that was a, a case of a, of a book being commissioned because um, someone talked to me about something that I didn't know about, but I thought was really interesting and that other people would be interested to learn about. And they were. I've sort of jumped ahead a little bit and not really asked you how you came to be at Princeton. And to, so maybe you could go back to that and you could tell me what your role here is and, and yeah, how you, how you yeah. came to it. Um, so the, when, when we left off, you were at, at Wiley doing journals, I think. Yes, but I'd been obviously previously an economics editor at OUP. So I knew quite a lot of the other editors and the circle of economics editors is a fairly small one. And it's got smaller, sadly, recently. And we all know each other very well. And we have a tradition of uh, having dinner together at conferences. We have this kind of camaraderie. And I was at a conference and Seth, who Seth Ditchick, who is now the editorial director at Yale in the US, but was the uh, 
economics editor in the US for Princeton and is a really brilliant economics editor. He approached me at this conference quietly over a coffee and said, oh, we might be appointing uh, someone in the UK. Would you be interested? And having always loved the kinds of books that Princeton do, the, the kind of crossover between academic and trade, I kind of leapt at the offer. So having been invited, what, what was the role that you were being invited to fulfil? Um, it was a publisher for social sciences. So um, I was going to be uh, commissioning in economics, sociology and psychology predominantly with a bit of philosophy and other things kind of thrown in as appropriate. So it's bringing everything together in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Although actually it turned out to be quite difficult to do because there'd be constant kind of, you know, one moment you'd be being asked to focus on economics and then the next on psychology. And because I hadn't commissioned in psychology and the discipline had changed a lot, it was actually really difficult to get that going. And in the end, we abandoned it and decided not to focus on uh, psychology. So there were some challenges in having such a broad area and then over the years so about um, a year ago uh, three of us were made editorial directors um, to manage teams so I actually manage four editors in the US and two editors here. Is that difficult logistically to do? Uh, yes <laughs> it's really challenging I have to admit. There's so many things that you take for granted when you're just in the same office, you know, just being able, I mean, A, being able to just wander in and, and run something past someone or check something with them informally, because every communication you have when someone is 3,000 miles away becomes more formalised because you have to think about it and plan it. So that, that is quite difficult, even with technology that we have nowadays, so... Now, you said a moment ago, Sarah, that you'd always admired Princeton books mm. um, before you worked here. So what, what were the kind of books that had made an impact on? What ones had you sort of picked up on as being sort of typical Princeton books that you admired? Well, I was just very jealous of the success of some of their right. books. So, I mean, uh, Seth commissioned a book called This Time uh, This Time is Different by Ken um, Rogoff and Carmen Reinhart, which I think was one of the most important books post-financial uh, crisis um, and had a huge impact. And um, Princeton has been always very good at doing, especially in economics, at doing really high, pro you know, commissioning high-profile authors and fashioning them so that they have still have huge intellectual heft and are highly respected within the academy but they're read by a very wide audience of people outside the academy including policy makers and people working in the finance industry and just generally kind of people who are involved in all aspects of, of kind of government and, and business. And have you found your time for acquisitions diminishing as you've taken on more responsibilities? Is that difficult to strike the balance? It's a huge challenge. Yeah, I think I'm failing miserably at the moment. Um, how, I mean, how do you carve out time? With great difficulty, yeah. Every now and then I have a panic and think, I must set aside a morning or an afternoon for doing some commissioning. Actually, the thing I find most difficult is not just the, the commissioning, but also... Um, 
because I tend to be focusing more on books for that broader audience, the projects take a lot more time to develop, even to contract stage. And then also the the thing that I've struggled with too is the editing, because I'm actually an old-fashioned editor. So with the trade books, I line edit them. And sometimes I can go through a manuscript two or three times to make sure, you know, so you may do an initial line edit just for style and content and lots of questions in the side saying, I don't understand what you mean here. Or what about this bit of research you haven't mentioned or or whatever. But then um, there's often quite a lot of structural work. So, you know, a book that I'm, I won't say which, but a book that I'm publishing soon, well, next year, later this year, we did kind of major line editing. But then in the end, we changed the structure enormously and cut one whole chapter and moved several around. So there's quite a lot of that kind of work to do as well, which is just you need time to think about it. And it's really, really hard to find the time. And it's not just finding two hours here and an hour there. You really need to immerse yourself in it. Otherwise, you lose, don't you? You lose track of what you're actually, you know, all the elements you're trying to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're trying to... So the, the book I'm working on at the moment, I'm just doing the line editing. And that is... I mean, it's difficult to find time for that, but you can do it in a couple of hours, you know, a chapter to go... Well, like, I did one on the flight <laughs> recently. I did quite a lot of editing on planes. But, the yes, the, the structural stuff, you really need a whole day to kind of immerse yourself and think about it carefully and run ideas past people and, and so on. I, I find that quite quite challenging but I mean it's important work to do as well. So Sarah maybe to round off I could just ask you I know it's invidious to choose among all your titles or Princeton titles but but one that you think maybe says something about your approach to publishing or the way you the way you've approached commissioning or I, I'm, I'll leave it as broad as that a book a book that's close to your heart for whatever reason. Well one book that I'm is very close to my heart is um, a book that we're just about to publish by Tony Atkinson, who died a couple of years ago, who was one of the greatest economists um, the UK has ever produced. And he was actually a near neighbour. He and his wife, Judith, lived kind of street away from, from me. So there was a kind of both an intellectual engagement with him. When I first moved to OUP, I edited some of his books, actually with Thomas Piketty. And... Um, he was very, very patient and kind. He was a kind of mentor to me, really, and put up with the fact that I didn't really understand much about economics and never made me feel bad about it. And so he, he, his last, he unfortunately got, well, he very sadly got ill um, a few years ago. He had leukemia and uh, he, but he was working, he was so passionate about what he did. He was working right up until his death, pretty much. And he, his last book was unfinished, but it was based on a major report, which he did for the World Bank on measuring poverty around the world. And uh, we have the great privilege of publishing that book. It was uh, incomplete, but um, two of his uh, previous students, John Micklewright and Andrew Brandolini, worked on the manuscript. They didn't. They were very keen not to finish it and sort of m- kind of pretend it was what it wasn't. But they put in commentary and notes to guide the reader through it, so they could said, you know, in some places they say, well, we think this is what Tony would have said, or they point to other material. Um, and there are forwards by uh, Francois Bourguignon, who's someone that I published, um, who's a fantastic economist, another ex-World Bank chief economist, and also Nick Stern, who'll be 
well known to everyone they both wrote contributions as well so I think it's a really exciting book a because there's a kind of personal connection there but also because um, it's a testament to someone's passion for what they do and also it's a testament to the love that all these other very you know highly respected economists and respect had for his work and the fact that everyone has come together to to finish this project is really moving but also very exciting I was talking to Sarah Caro, Editorial Director for Social Sciences at Princeton University Press. Do check out the very smart new Princeton University Press website, where you'll find titles commissioned by Sarah and her colleagues in the recently released Spring 2020 catalogue. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.